chapter 3, 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Good to have you with us. Welcome to the Desert Breeze Community Church. You guys doing well? Okay, kind of. There's a few of you doing well. I feel so bad for you. You guys doing well? Much better, much better. Let me do that one more time. Are you guys doing well? Oh, that's good. I like it. I like it. Yes. Our teaching series, Essential Doctrine, What Every Christian Should Know. And so last weekend, as we've been working through this acronym, Doctrine, we landed on D last weekend, and D represents what? Anybody? Don't all answer at once. Deity of Christ. Deity of Christ. Let me go back and reteach that right now. Okay, I'm not going to do that. But uh, you'll have to go back and listen online. But Deity of Christ. And then the O stands for this weekend. What is it? Original sin. That's what we're going to look at. We're working through this acronym. Key verse for this teaching series is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So when you go through the storms of life, if you're not watching both your life and making sure your life is consistent with your doctrine, listen to me, you're going to crash and burn because your head's going to be spinning. You won't know which end is up, and it's our doctrine. Our doctrine is our instrument panel that brings us back into reality, and that's why we're looking at doctrine, but we're also wanting to make sure that our lives line up with, with our doctrine. 
And so look at your notes here. First question on the notes, it really kind of helps us as we walk through this original sin idea. Why is this world so full of sin and suffering? Why is this world so full of evil and suffering? This is a question that stumbles a lot of people. A lot of people stumble over this question. A lot of them, uh, and this is one of the big reasons why sometimes people don't even believe in God. Because of all the sin and all the suffering on this planet Earth. Now, our, our answers found, uh, the answers in our American culture range from circumstances. Uh, I'm, I'm a victim of unfair you know, treatment or, or unfair circumstances. It's the oppressive people in my life. Or it could be any number of reasons. We, we make up, we, come, we say that it's our circumstances that makes me you know, struggle and the wicked and evilness that comes out of me, it's my circumstances, or we say it's our conditioning. It was the way I was raised. My parents put my diaper on too tight when I was uh, growing up, and uh, that's the way I, it's just why I am the way I am. Or we, we blame our chromosomes. It's just the way I was made. I'm not minimizing any of these, but they, they influence us, certainly, but they don't control our lives. And, and in fact, in our culture, the answers in our American culture, you know, are for the solution to these problems are politics and economy and education and counseling and self-help and the list goes on. Let me ask you this question. What if our circumstances, conditioning, and chromosomes aren't the cause of our sin and suffering but only magnify something that is already inside of us? In fact, the Bible says that our problem is much deeper and it is called original sin because all of us have inherited a sin nature that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In the movie Silence of the Lambs, A young FBI trainee, Officer Starling, is given the task of interviewing Dr. Hannibal Lecter, a brilliant psychiatrist and grisly killer kept under close watch in the Baltimore State Hospital for the criminally insane. Officer Starling is hoping to get some uh, insight into the minds of murderers to help them track down another serial killer. Officer Starling says to Hannibal Lecter, I think you can provide some insight in advance this study. And what possible reason could I have to do that? Curiosity. About what? About why you're here and what happened to you. Now listen to what he said here. It's, it's, it's really quite, quite profound. He says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? Am I evil, Officer Starling? Can you hear Anthony Hopkins' voice in that? That's creepy. What kind of a church is this? He quotes from a really terrible movie. Why did you bring me here this morning? Because there's a really an important point in all of this. 
And the fact is, is that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are sinners by nature and by choice. The Bible makes that very clear. And all the suffering that you see on this planet Earth is a result of our rebellion against God, our sin against the God of the galaxies. And so what we're going to look at is three questions here. I believe that uh, this text answers three questions for us. What is the cause? consequences and cure to our sin and suffering problem. What is the cause, consequences, and cure to our sin and suffering problem? Here's the first one. What is the cause of our sin? What is the cause of our sin? It is doubting God's commandments and character. That's your first couple fill in the blanks there. So it is doubting God's commandments and character. Now listen to me. Uh, Notice what the serpent says to them in verse one. Did God really say? That's what he says in verse one. And then in verse, as they have this dialogue, verses four and five, he says, you will not surely die. So this serpent is sneering. He's mocking. He's trying to create an atmosphere of intimidation with, with not defensible arguments, but dogmatic assertions. Do you know the difference? So he's not giving a good, healthy defense to what he's saying. He's just trying to bully them and and intimidate them with this sneering. Did God really say, and you're not going to die. So did God really say, undermining God's commandments, you're not going to die. Because God said, you'll surely die. He's undermining God's character in that, so, it's, so it, it's, it's really interesting. A, a stat that I came across a number of years ago that was really troubling for me is that 80% of our Christian kids lose their faith in college. And I don't believe that it's because of defensible arguments. I don't think it's because of defensible arguments, though maybe, maybe, but I think it's primarily because of an atmosphere of of bullying and sneering, uh, you know, maybe from a professor that has more degrees than Fahrenheit, and he comes at them, not to give them defensible arguments, but dogmatic assertions, creating an atmosphere of intimidation and bullying. That's the work of our adversary, the devil. That's what he does with us. He wants us to begin to question God's commandments and God's character. And uh, so when somebody says to you, do you really believe that? You're sharing your faith? And they say, that's ridiculous. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Do you really believe that? A good response would be, well, that's a dogmatic assertion trying to create an atmosphere of intimidation. It's not really a defensible argument. (laughs) So could you please tell me why you think what I believe is unsound? File that away, okay? And so, what is the serpent doing? He's not attacking their belief in God's existence. So if he can't get you to doubt God's existence, here's where he's coming after. He's gonna get you to doubt God's goodness. He's coming after you. And it's character assassination is what he's doing. And what happens next here, here's your next fill in the blank, it is a failure to trust God's wisdom and love for your life. 
Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. Do you hear what the serpent is saying? Your eyes will be open when you eat of it. God knows that. You will have new horizons, greater opportunities, a happier life. That's what he's saying. That is the lie of the serpent that has passed into every human heart. And that is you can't trust God. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. If you obey him, he'll keep you down. If you give your life to God, you'll miss out. If you serve God, you won't be all that you can be. That's the lie. Now, James chapter 1 gives us really a, a, really a great understanding of temptation and how temptation comes after us and teaches us in James 1. We studied this uh, over a year ago of kind of the pattern of temptation, how it works its way out in our life. You need to know this. And um, it starts off with desire, nothing wrong with our desires, and we all desire to be happy, and that can be a very good thing, but what happens is it goes from desire, here's the pattern, and desire leads to deception. We're deceived into thinking that somehow God's holding out on us, and I'm gonna find my happiness outside of his commandments and his character and who God is. So desire leads to deception, and deception leads to disobedience, and disobedience leads to death. And what's interesting about this text is that in verses 16 and 17 of James chapter 1, he says, do not be deceived, because that's what's happening. Do not be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. What is, what is he saying in that? God's not holding out on you. Why would you take the bait? Why would you chase after the things you're chasing after? Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Now, Sinclair Ferguson, a Scottish minister, tells a story to try to get this point across. He says, imagine around Christmas time a man has a little boy, and he takes that little boy to some toy superstore, and he walks all the way through the store with his little boy, hand in hand, and he says, do you see that? Would you like that? The little boy goes, oh, yes, yes, daddy, yes, I would like that. And then they go a little further, do you see that? Do you see those, those things? Oh, yes, yes, I see those things. Would you like some of those or would you like that? Oh, yes, daddy, I would love to have that. He goes all the way through the store that way and he gets to the very end of the store and he turns to his son and says, let me tell you why I brought you here. I've brought you here to let you know you're not going to get any of this. I'm not going to give you anything. Do you see all that? You'll have none of it. Now let's go home. Sinclair says, this is what you believe in your heart of hearts about God and you. You don't believe God has your best interest at heart. That's fundamentally the cause of our sin. So the cause of sin is doubting God's commandments and character and a failure to, to trust God's wisdom and love for our life. Here's the next one. It is putting ourselves in the place of God. It's putting ourselves in the place. It's, just, it's kind of a natural, natural to all that. If I doubt God, I'm going to take things into my own hands. That's called self-centeredness, by the way. And so verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. That's what we want. 
We want to be like God. So this is trying to be our own Savior and Lord. It is putting yourself at the center of your life. It is taking life into your own hands. It is, it is living for your own glory. What's wrong with the world is that you and I want to be God. My life belongs to me. I can, I can live however I want to live. Or this world belongs to me, and I can use it however I want to use it. Now, Martin Luther in his famous lectures in Romans says this, really quite a profound uh, statement. He says this about our, our sin. Our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks to use all things, even God, for its own sake. So self-centeredness this kind of trying to play God makes everything else a means to an end, especially God, because you don't trust God with your life. Now, self-centeredness is not only the reason we do bad things, but it's also the reason we do good things. The reason we do bad things, yeah, that's called irreligion. We break all the rules. But doing the good things is that we keep all the rules. That's called religion. And self-centeredness can motivate both of those. People who do bad things out of self-centeredness are easy to recognize because they are, they're hard to get along with. They're impatient, unkind, envious, boastful, proud, domineering, controlling, abusive, easily angered, fault-finding, hypersensitive, bitter, scornful, dishonest. That's just a short list of the characteristics of someone who does bad things motivated out of their own self-centeredness trying to play God. People who do good things out of self-centeredness can be moral, kind, generous to get people to like them and respect them and listen to them. It's motivated out of self-centeredness. This is doing all kinds of good things, not for their sake, not for other people's sake, but for your own sake, your sake. You're not serving them, you're serving yourself and using them to feel better about yourself. Like self-centeredness is the basis of religion. Here's how religion works. I obey God, I say my prayers, I, uh, I read the Bible, I pray, I attend church, and therefore, I've done all those good things, therefore I deserve and expect blessing from God. In my many years of ministry here at Desert Breeze uh, and even beyond, I've heard many people say as they go through hardship, Christians going through hardship, I've heard them say this, I've obeyed God, I prayed regularly, I've read my Bible faithfully, I've attended church consistent, consistently. What use is it to be a Christian if this kind of stuff happens to you and God doesn't seem to answer your prayers? Hmm, what use? Is that a Freudian slip? Sounds like to me you're using God. You're not actually serving, enjoying, loving God, you are using God. Because of this, you can't divide the world into good people, bad people. Our tendency is to do that. Oh, those are the good people. Or, or we're the good people, usually. We're the good people. They're the bad people out there. And so we tend to, to divide the world up into good people, bad people. The Bible has only one category for all people. You guys know what that category is? 
We're all bad people. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. That's the category that God puts us in. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, whether you're good or bad. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. That's fundamentally what's wrong with all of us. And um, not easy to hear. We don't want to hear that. Yet the Bible's very clear about that. Not a popular message these days. And yet we need to hear that. And um, Romans 1.25 says this, that we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than the creator. And so look at verse 6. If you have your Bibles open there, look at verse 6. Just uh, see what it says here about what uh, Eve does. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And it was a delight to the eyes, and, that she, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also, did you notice this? And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. He was with her? What in the world? That lug nut was with her all along. Just standing by the side, just watching her be led astray by this serpent. What in the world is going on? It's a bit subtle when you read through it. You don't see it. All of a sudden, it pops off the page to you. You go, what? I would never do anything like that. (laughs) Don't ask my wife. She doesn't know anything. She's on that retreat this weekend with a lot of ladies, so you can't ask her. <laughs> no, my wife would say, no, you've done that a lot of times, more times than I'd like to admit. Huh? Yes, I have. I have. We, we, we tend to don't take responsibility uh, that God has given to us. But what is she doing? What are they doing? It's called worship. Called worship. Worship is ascribing ultimate worth and value to something in such a way that it engages and energizes your whole being. Let me walk you through this. Your whole being, meaning your mind, your emotion, and your will. Let me walk you through that. Verse 6 mind, her mind, she saw that the tree was good for food. Emotion, delight to the eyes to make one wise. Will, she took its fruit and ate. Now, let me ask you this. What? What would wake up Adam and Eve from this deceptive, evil enchantment with this tree, with sin, ultimately, is what that represents? What would wake up Adam and Eve from this deceptive, evil enchantment with this tree? Turn to the people sitting next to you and see if they can come up with a, with a good, quick answer. What, what would wake them up? What would wake them up? So if they're worshiping, that's worship. They're showing us what worship is, worshiping the wrong wrong thing. So if 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 we worship our way into trouble, you worship your way out of trouble. You worship God, and that is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith is you you stop worshiping created things. You start worshiping the creator, and your, your affection for 
the creator begins to exceed your affection for created things. That's what, that's what we need. If you want to pull your heart off of worldliness or the created things, you do that by worshiping God and realizing, I'm trying to get from this what I should be getting from you, God. And so I put this on my notes, uh, is that the, the, this is what would, would wake them up, the truth that what God offers is infinitely and eternally sweeter and more satisfying. That's what wakes us up. And so here's, let me summarize this first part. So what is the cause of our sin and suffering? Here's an easy way to remember. This is what's going on in your heart when you, when you take a path that's outside of what God has directed for us in his word when we kind of wander away from God. It starts with unbelief. It always starts with unbelief. This is kind of the trio of sin working in our own hearts. So I start doubting his goodness. That's why we start kind of getting away from God. I doubt his goodness. I doubt that he has my best interest at heart. That leads to pride and self-centeredness and, uh, and then idolatry, idolatry. Idolatry is loving anything more than we love God. That's exactly what they're doing. So to get my heart off of those things, first of all, I've got to believe that he doesn't have my, that he, he does have my best interest at heart. I've got to believe that. I've got to quit taking life into my own hands and being self-centered. I need to be what God-centered. I need to focus on him and make him at the center of my life. I get rid of those idols in direct proportion to beginning to love God more than I love the idols in, in my life. We sin. Sin is what we do when our heart is not satisfied with God. Sin is what we do when our heart is not satisfied with with God. We sin because we are deceived into thinking that we will be happier by disobeying God rather than obeying God. Now everybody look up here. Listen to me. I'm going to shoot straight with you about this. You need to know this. And that is you're not going to be happier. You're not going to be happier chasing after the things of this world. You're going to be happier when you become fully devoted to God through his son, Jesus Christ. To think other than that is to be deceived and duped. You're insane to think otherwise, and yet we've got billions of people on this planet Earth that are thinking like that. They have bought the lie. Only God can satisfy the deepest longing of our soul. We chase after everything, in our, especially in our American culture. It's crazy. It's insane. And so the power of sin's promise of happiness, sin offers a promise of happiness. That's why people do it. That's why we all do it. It'll make me happier. The power of sin's promise of happiness is always, always broken by the power of God's promise of happiness. Happiness and holiness are one and the same pursuit. Oh my goodness, the more you're holy, the more you're going to be happy in him. And that's all part of it. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's kind of part of the cure. So what are the consequences of our sin? Let me walk through these, you know, and let me give them to you and then we'll go back and uh, unpack each one of them. So it starts off, just makes sense, this is logic. By the way, all that I'm talking to you about this weekend, uh, a number of years ago, this was revolutionary for me. Nothing has brought more life change to me than my understanding of what we're teaching here this weekend. And so it starts like this, very logical, spiritual alienation. Starts with spiritual alienation. 
I'm alienated from God. So, of course, I rebel against God. I think he's holding out on me. I, I'm, I'm separated from God. We'll talk about that. I don't, I don't want to go into it too much right now. I, I want you to see the bigger picture. So spiritual alienation naturally leads to psychological alienation. I become troubled on the inside. If, if God is the source of, of all acceptance, security, and significance, meaning hope and happiness, life, love, and liberty, and I've turned away from him, I'm going to be messed up on the inside. That's that psychological alienation. I'm going to be tormented on the inside. And then that leads to sociological alienation. It's going to jack up my relationships because all... Because I'm self-centered, life's all about me, I'm trying to fill a void on the inside of me, that just makes sense, see the logic? So spiritual alienation, the next one is psychological alienation, social alienation, then physical alienation. Let's go back and talk about each one of those. The last one is physical alienation. First of all, spiritual alienation. Look at verse 8b. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The word here, walking walking in the garden, or this idea of walking is a Hebrew idiom to walk with God or or someone meant to have fellowship, friendship, to be close to, to do life together. So listen, we were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day and to look into the eyes of our maker, our creator, and receive all of the the security, significance, acceptance we would ever need. And we turned away from that. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Now death is more, it's more than uh, your soul separating from your body. But it's, means separation from God for the wages of sin is death we are separated from God he's holding out on me I'm going to find life on my own but it goes on it says but so the wages of sin is death but the gift the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord so what is eternal life well this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent that's John 17, 3. So eternal life is knowing God. And it's more than a, qu- a quantity of life. It's a quality of life. Now listen to me. He gives us eternal life, and it's a quality, quantity, quality of life that all your best days on this planet can't give to you, and all your worst days on this planet can't take from you. A meaning, hope, and happiness. An acceptance, security, significance. Think about this. If he's the source of all love and life and liberty and we've turned from him, it's only obvious this alienation, this spiritual alienation is going to lead to psychological alienation. That's the next one. Psychological alienation, verse 7a. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Now, if you have your Bibles open, look at the last verse of chapter 2 before chapter three of this big event, this big fall that happened. What does it say in Genesis 2.25? Anybody? They were naked and unashamed. Nakedness means to be known fully. They were known fully and they were unashamed. And now we go from that 
to being naked and filled with shame, being afraid. Shame is being troubled over who you are. It goes along with guilt. Guilt is troubled over what I've done. Shame is troubled over who I am. And so to be fully known, to be fully known and not loved is our worst nightmare. It's oftentimes why we distance ourselves from others. I don't want, because I'm afraid that if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. So to be fully known and not loved is our worst nightmare. Worst nightmare, but to be fully loved but not known is shallow and superficial. But to be fully known and fully loved is what we desperately need, is what we desperately want. And only God can fully know us and love us. In fact, the more you live in the reality of him fully knowing you and loving you, the more you are liberated from pretense, humbled out of your self-righteousness, and fortified to face anything life throws at you. Let me give you a couple cross-references here. James chapter 4, verse 1. He actually starts that chapter by saying, what causes wars? and quarrels among you? What, what causes all the conflict in your relationships? And this is what he says. He hits the nail on the head here. It's the passions at war within you. So why do I have these passions at war within me? Why the turmoil? That's that, that's that psychological alienation because of my spiritual alienation. You're going to have turmoil on the inside of you in direct proportion to how much you've turned away from God. That's what he's saying here and it's going to create... Uh, soci- sociological uh, alienation, problems in our life. Galatians 5.25 and 26, it says, if we walk by the Spirit, you won't, you won't be conceited. You won't have that turmoil going on inside of you. Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. So the word conceited is, that, is an interesting word. It, uh, if you read from the King James, it would probably say... Uh, Vain glory. It defines it as vain glory, and that's really what conceit is. Remember pride, what we talked about pride? So pride is, is actually conceit. Conceit is vain glory. The word vain means empty of glory. So if you were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day and to look into the very face of your Creator and to have Him fill you up with glory, glory, glory means significance, that you matter. To know that you matter because he looks in your eyes. The only eyes in the universe that matter looks at you and says, I love you. I created you for relationship and to fill you up with all the acceptance, security, significance you would ever need. And if we don't have that, we're going to be conceited. We're going to be empty of that glory. We're going to make life all about us. Pride. Self-centeredness, take life into our own hands. So what does this psychological alienation look like? I was kind of thinking about this. And what are these fig leaves or what does this pride look like? So God has been, in my relationship with God, I'll just share with you my own personal uh, kind of working through some issues. I've been working on my pride. I've got horrible pride and the Lord has brought that to my attention as I've been working through this. And, and, and I want to get rid of my pride. And uh, 
I'm not saying that out of some sort of false humility. You know, I, I really am. And I don't want God to oppose me. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So I, I don't want that. I'm going to make sure that I don't have any of that pride in my life. And so here's, here's kind of a list that I've been kind of working through in my own life and what this psycho, uh, psychological alienation looks like and um, what fig leaves or pride looks like. It is people working themselves to death trying to prove to themselves and others that they matter because they don't trust God's love enough to get worth and value from him. We'll call that drivenness, okay? That's that drivenness. I'm guilty. I'm guilty, okay? Here's the next one. It is people who are unteachable, can't take advice or correction. They respond negatively to criticism, can't admit feelings, faults, and failures. And repentance is always under duress because they don't trust God enough to rest in his forgiveness, love, and acceptance. So the first one's called drivenness. This, we'll call this one defensiveness. There's a defensive. I'm getting much better at this. I can still kind of struggle with that more often than I'd like to admit Here's the next one, the third one. It is people demonizing others and tearing others down and criticizing others to build their own sense of of self-worth because they don't trust God's love enough to get security and significance from him. So you got drivenness and you got defensiveness and we'll call this one scornfulness. I mean, that's the culture we live in, isn't it? Turn on the radio, turn on the TV, late night talk show hosts. It's scornfulness. It's all scornfulness. Why is that? If I can push you down, it makes me feel big. That's called conceit. That's called pride. I can do that. Yeah. Here's the fourth one. It is people exhausting themselves, trying to control everything to make sure their family and their children and their health and their finances and everything will be fine and nothing will go wrong as they are eaten up with anxiety because they don't trust that God is loving, wise, and in control and always has their best interest at heart. So we got drivenness, defensiveness, scornfulness, and we'll call this one self-consciousness. I'm just preoccupied with me and my life, trying to manage everything. And I could be guilty of that one, too. How about you? Did this land on anybody this morning? Anybody? Okay. There's like two of us here. In the... I know there's more of you out there. Okay? Because I hang out with you. And I see it in you. Misery loves company. God's working on me with this. I want him to work with you on this because God opposes the proud he gives grace to the humble it's just evidence of our pride our psychological alienation and that leads to social alienation there's two things that uh, this is identified with and this is what we do socially so because I'm spiritually alienated and I have this psychological alienation this turmoil going on inside of me uh, the social alienation is seen by my hiding hiding, and my hurling. (laughs) Sounds like somebody just threw up. But uh, 
That's not what that means. It actually means blame shifting. It's just an easy way for me to, to recognize that. And so when I sit down with people, kind of helping them process life, sometimes I see a lot of hiding and hurling, and I can do the same thing. I hide, and then when I have to come out from hiding, I hurl, I blame shift. That's what you see with Adam and Eve. Let's take each of those very quickly. Verse 7b Hiding, we got hiding here. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what are, what are fig leaves? Fig leaves are masks we wear to keep people at a distance. It can be superficial conversation. It can, we can use humor, intelligence, busyness, success, shyness, anger, spirituality. See, I cannot bear having you see all the way into me. I must control and use you to get you to see me the way I want you to see me. Therefore, transparency and self-giving love is pretty much out of the question. Fig leaves are also an effort to get from created things what you should be getting from the creator. So if you pursue relationships, career, family, money, parenting, sports, you can add to that list, whatever you're pursuing, before achieving a healthy sense of identity in Christ, then your relationships, your career, your family, your money, your parenting, your sports will be an effort to complete yourself. That's why you're pursuing all of that stuff. It's not out of an abundance of what you are in Christ. It's out of a deficit to fill a void deep, deep inside of you. You are doing all of that to justify yourself. What happens when your fig leaves get blown away by powerful winds of suffering? Because it's just a matter of time. Well, we go from hiding, we have to come out from hiding, to hurling blame shifting. Look at verse 11. God asked Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? Adam reflects on the importance of taking personal responsibility for his actions, summons his courage, and says, the woman made me do this. And you know what's interesting about this? The woman made me do it that you gave me. Woo! That's pretty gutsy. Blames God, the woman and God. That's pretty good. I think I'm going to take notes right about now. I just saw a couple guys lift their pen and start taking notes. No, no, this isn't what you're supposed to do, okay? This isn't what you're supposed to do. And, and so, verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent made me do it. So we blame our circumstances, conditioning, our chromosomes for our sin. Keep in mind, they are not the cause of our sin, but they can certainly magnify our sin, our sinful nature. Not minimizing any of those, not minimizing it. They can certainly influence our lives, but they do not control our lives. There's something much deeper within us. Now, there is no healing, there's no healing in hiding and hurling. The more skilled we are at impression management, the more we are trapped in our aloneness. As one writer put it, like the Dead Sea, the person who keeps everything trapped inside becomes stagnant and sterile. Now think about this. Let me ask you this question. If Jesus paid your penalty and purchased your acceptance, why would you hide, deny, and excuse your sin? 
There's no need to. The reason why we do that is we don't really believe he has, that he's forgiven us and that there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He doesn't condemn us. He'll never hold our sins against us. Romans 8.1. You can only be loved by others to the extent that you are known. The irony of fig, tree, uh, fig leaves and, and mask is that although we wear them to get people to think well of us, they are drawn to us only when we take them off. So if you really want to create a healthy environment within your circle of influence or touch or within your family or small group, is vulnerability be creates or begets vulnerability. It's got to start with someone. Have you ever been in a small group where someone begins to open up their heart and immediately you got other people going, oh my goodness, I didn't know you felt that way. I do too. Oh, yes, yes. And it begins to create an atmosphere of, of vulnerability and love and acceptance and healing. James 4, 1 and 2, it says, what causes quarrels and, and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then he gives us the answer. You do not have because you don't ask God. You're not coming to God. You've got spiritual alienation going on, so it creates the psychological alienation that leads to the social alienation. That's what he's saying right there. And this leads to physical alienation. Verse 16b it says, and, and this is not part of our text, but it's part of the context, with pain you will give birth to children. Who's he talking to there? Women, yeah. And it says, with pain. I don't think it's really that difficult. <laughs> I was there with my wife, and I was like, hey, come on, get over it, just pop the kid out, let's go. And she got me in a headlock, and that's why I'm bald today. She beat me in the head. She scraped all that hair off the top of my head by going. Okay, I'm obviously kidding there, but I mean, that's why, you, that's why we have pain. That's why women have pain. Look at verse 18. It, the ground, will produce thorns and thistles. Verse 19. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Why is life so hard? Right here. We live in a fallen world. It beats the living daylights out of us. It's hard to make a living. Why is that? It's right here. Physical alienation is what he said. Romans 8, 19 through 22. All of creation was subjected to futility, it says, by God, so that when we are frustrated with life, we would be drawn to him so that we could see that he's frustrated with our rebellion and sinfulness and what we've done to this planet. That's why. It's always meant to bring our hearts back, back to him. Turning our back on God has put us at odds with creation, Disease, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, famine, colds, flu, food poisoning. I've had that a few times. That ain't fun. It's all because we live in a fallen world. Ecclesiastes really says that life is meaningless. It's futile under the sun apart from God. Apart from God. So, 
What's the cure? Kind of already started talk, talking about it kind of throughout the cause and the consequences. What's the cure? Listen, here's what it is. Three things. God's mercy, justice, and grace. This is amazing. If you've fallen asleep, wake up, okay? Because this is what you want to know. This is the cure to all of our sin and suffering on this planet Earth. Here it is. And so it's, it's God's mercy. God's mercy is, is really, you can define mercy like this. It's not getting what you deserve. Justice is getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. And so it's not enough to know God's mercy, justice, and grace. You must experience, you must experience each one. Here's the first one, the mercy of God's hand. So he comes to Adam and he says, where are you? Or in other words, why are you hiding? And the right answer would be, because I sinned. That would be the right answer. But verse 10, the answer Adam gives is, I was naked, afraid, and hid myself. Verse 11, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Do you hear that leading question? <laughs> God's making it easy for them to admit their sin. That's what confession is. It's just agreeing with God. But they're refusing to do that. Verse 12, Adam blames the woman Verse 13, what is this that you have done? And then there's where Eve blames the serpent. Now, now this is what you need to keep in mind is that an omniscient God, an all-knowing God, doesn't ask questions for information, but to bring revelation to the one being asked. God knows exactly where they are. He's trying to help them to, to see their eyes opened up to their condition and what's going on. And I love this part of the story. This is a beautiful revelation of our merciful God. He doesn't descend in fire and judgment upon them. Moments into the fall of the human race, he's already our wonderful counselor. He comes in asking questions. Now, if you had only read the Bible up to this point and never read the rest of the Bible, you would have no idea the lengths to which God would go to not judge us but to seek us in love and come near to us. And of course, that's all through Jesus Christ. But uh, I put a couple cross-references under this one of the mercy of God. Exodus 34, 6, Psalm 103:8, And there's two other Old Testament uh, verses that go like this. Maybe you've heard them before. I was meditating on this uh, about a year ago. It was really helpful for me, really, in understanding the character of God. And it goes like this. God is merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Now, there's this crazy idea out there floating around that the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God. Ooh, I like the New Testament God better than the Old Testament God. Old Testament God needs meds. He needs to get on his meds, needs to get leveled off, and once he does that, he'll be more like the New Testament God. Listen to me, they're the same God. The Old Testament God is the same God of the New Testament. The New Testament God is the same God of the Old Testament. Your problem is the way that you're reading the Old Testament. This is at the very beginning of the book. What is he doing? He's a wonderful counselor. God is merciful. Listen to me. God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's what you see. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Now, 
He's giving us really a good lesson in counseling, how to counsel, how to help a friend out in, in, in their troubles and in, in what we should typically do. And, and what we learn from this is that no one ever learns about their sin by being lectured, okay? And that's why I'm not a very good counselor. Because I like the lecture. I mean, I do. I got this little pulpit on wheels that I drag around with me. And you come over to me and tell me your problems, and I go, okay, here's a lecture. I mean, that's what I would have done here. I would have said, where are you? And then they said, well, we're hiding. No, you're hiding because you ate from the tree. Get over here. What in the world are you thinking? That's suicidal. So I would give them a lecture, okay. You probably don't want me to counsel you, do you? My wife certainly doesn't. And so, I mean, I've, I've gotten much better, much better. But, uh, but what's interesting about this, no one ever learns about their sin by being lectured. We have too many layers of self-justification. Do you hear the justification in, in their response? So what is God doing? He's peeling it back. You ask questions to help them get out of their deception and to see the truth and will set them free. They've got to discover it on their own as you begin to ask questions. See, it's, it's not repentance that causes the Father's love. It's the Father's love that brings the repentance. Do you, do you see that? This is the Father coming after them. He loves them. He's the wonderful counselor. It tells us in Romans 2.4, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. See, see we, it all of a sudden dawns on us. We wake up and we go, what in the world am I thinking? I'm chasing after all of this stuff in the world, and it doesn't even come close to what I have in him. I'm running back to him. That's, that's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. God is seeking them as a loving father, an intimate friend, a patient teacher, a gentle guide, a generous provider, an understanding counselor, a faithful sustainer. That's our God. That's what we see in the story. It's absolutely breathtaking. So the mercy of God's heart, and then we've got the justice of God's hand. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is called the proto-evangelium. The first gospel. We have the first gospel within the first three chapters of the Bible. Right after the fall, we have the gospel. Verse 15. It's absolutely amazing. I love it. Here's the picture. Imagine a family hiking Thunderbird Park and a poisonous snake very quickly slithers out in the middle of them. But the father goes after the snake to stomp on it to crush its head He destroys the snake, saves the family, but in the process, the snake bites him and he dies. That's the picture. Adam should have done that for Eve. But he was AWOL. He was just standing by her side, not supporting her, not loving her, not helping her, not running interference. Adam should have done that for Eve. What this text is saying, verse 15, a human being, the offspring of the woman, is going to destroy Satan's sin and death, but get a fatal wound in the process. And that's our Savior. 
Romans 3, 25 and 26 basically says that the cross is the place where our judge takes our judgment. See, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. So you got the mercy of God's heart, the justice of God's hand, the grace, the grace of God's healing. Verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam, this is not part of our text, but it's part of the context, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. What is happening here? God covers our sin through the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. I love it. I gave you a lot there. And so I would encourage you to take those notes, go back through those notes and allow God to speak to you. This teaching has been transformational for my life. I hope it is for yours also. I'll be up at the front of the service here at the end of our prayer. And if you are new here, I'd love the opportunity to meet you. If you need prayer for any reason whatsoever, we would love to pray with you here this morning. Let's pray. So Father God, we We are so grateful that you have helped us to see through this famous and great story of the origins of our problem with sin and suffering and the solution that you have come after us. We didn't seek you, you seek us. You've come after us as our wonderful counselor and sympathetic savior. We are amazed that in your mercy we don't get what we deserve, but in your justice, In your justice, our Savior Jesus got what we deserve so that in your grace, we would get what he deserves. We praise you that the gospel heals our deepest wounds and is the antidote to Satan's most venomous lie that we can't trust your goodness. May the power of sin's promise be broken by the power of your promise as Jesus Christ becomes more beautiful to our imagination and more attractive to our hearts than anything in this world, we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.